This is the Sadness Channel, <laughs> where we discuss sadness and sad things. User error 57. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. <laughs> the fuck is Alan? <laughs> yeah. But- <laughs> so I'm trying to shake it up. Um, oh dear, we're back. And... Um, a <laughs> quick plug for the forum at community.era.show. There's some discussion starting to happen there now, which is good, as well as suggestions for topics and hashtag ask errors. So, yeah, do go there, sign up, and join the conversation. So let's start off with a quick hashtag ask error then, uh, and that is, what's the worst book you've ever read? So, Dan, what's the worst book you've ever read? Um, I'm going to be somewhat controversial and say anything written by J.R.R. Tolkien. His stories are amazing, but his writing is painful. It is a chore to get through anything like that. I can't believe you've stolen my one. I was going to say The Hobbit, so now I'm going to have to think of something else. Oh, no, sorry. I'll uh, I'll pick one of the other. Lord of the Rings, you can have The Hobbit back. <laughs> no, I did actually have one other one. So why is it such a chore to read? I mean, I remember reading The Hobbit at school and being forced to do so and just hating it. I don't know. I, just, I don't like fantasy bullshit, basically. I like hard sci-fi. So all the just, I don't know, wizards and all that, just ugh, no thank you. See, I, I love fantasy stories, but I feel like the way he writes is like, it was autumn and there were leaves on the ground. and The leaves were orange, not a kind of orange that is sunburnt, but the kind of orange that you would get from the back of peeling a freshly ripped orange. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> you're like what what is even happening in this scene like i get the color of the leaves like move on and then there's a poem you know and then there's a song and then it's like okay uh, i get the you know what dialogue please well that is why i don't like the book that i started listening to i don't i don't really read books i've said that before in the show that i tend to listen to them um but i'll get back to that so alan what is the worst book you've ever read and you're not allowed to say the bible (laughs) (laughs) i've never read it so that's 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 easy um i have i would put the quran way above the bible um so it's tricky because what's what's your measure of worst like you're saying hard to read or terrible content or you couldn't get past the first chapter i don't know just the book that you thought was the worst just that i don't know okay so mine's not a terrible book but it's bad in in interesting ways it's called little goes a long way my own story by sid little uh (laughs) half half of little and large it's 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 a kind of autobiography um and it's uh it's not huge it's only um uh, less than a couple of hundred pages so it's fairly easy to pick up but the thing that makes it bad is it's just a succession of little anecdotes and i know a lot of like autobiographies are like that but it's it's very childishly written um and but it's funny it's funny but it's it's terrible in equal measure um and i i heard about it on um i listened to richard herring's leicester square theater podcast and someone i can't remember who was interviewed and said about this Sid Little book was terrible. And this was a couple of years ago. And as soon as I heard that, I instantly went on Amazon and bought a secondhand copy. And then a month or so later, when it arrived from America, it arrived through the letterbox. And I was like, what the hell? What, what is this? I don't remember ordering this rubbish. Why did I order a book by Sid Little? And it's got a picture of his happy face uh, on the front. But I started reading it and it's actually terrible in a good way. Fair enough. Well, my one, somewhat controversially, is Moby Dick, for much the same reasons as you don't like Tolkien. 
just too much minutiae and not enough getting on with the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I listened to, I don't know, he was like in bed with some guy and I just got so bored. And my missus tried to read it and she got a lot further than me, but she had to give up as well because apparently he spends a whole chapter describing some church pew or something. Oh my God. Um, no, not the, the pulpit or whatever. And it's just, I don't get why that is hailed as this classic. And he refers to the whale as a fish. Fuck's sake. Yeah, but technically it is a fish. <laughs> technically it is very much not a fish, it's a mammal. It lives in the sea, it's a fish. Everything that lives in the sea are fish. Yeah, yeah, much like seals and yep. things like that. Yeah. Yep. Here, Egypt. Right, so physical media versus streaming. I have not had any physical media for a long time now. CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays and all of that sort of thing. It just doesn't make sense to me, really. Where do you guys stand on this? Have you got a bookshelf full of DVDs and CDs? I do have a couple of bookshelves and DVDs, but the timeline stops a few years ago. I used to buy them. I used to like walk around HMV and, and record shops and DVD shops, and I'd think, oh, that's a great film. Yeah, I'll buy that. Or I would order DVDs online and they'd come and then maybe I'd watch them. And then towards the end, I realized, actually, I'm not watching these. Um, I've still got some in the cellophane sat on the shelf that I've never watched, like Dr. Zhivago. It's still sat on my shelf. I need to watch that again, <laughs> uh, referencing one of our earlier episodes. But a thing that triggered me to stop buying uh, optical media was I was having a chat with my friend Andy and I mentioned um, buying a DVD. And he went, oh, you still buy optical media as like a, you know, passive aggressive joke thing. And I was like, yeah, don't you? And he said, no. And, I said, and it turns out his criteria that I have now adopted is if I'm not going to watch this thing three times or more, then it is not worth buying. There is no point buying a thing if you're not going to watch it multiple times. You could rent it at the time he was using Love Film. And now I'm into Netflix there really is no point in me buying a disc. Like it's just taking up space and it's an out a financial outlay that I don't need. And when I'm dead, who's going to go through my DVD collection and go, Oh wow. He's got Bill Bailey's comedy special. So have millions of other people. It's not rare. Like I can understand people buying rare vinyl and buying rare, like sofas and rare chairs and rare paintings, but DVDs are not rare that like millions of people have all of them because they're all pressed millions of times. So there's no inherent value in them. Um, and I will not watch most of them in my lifetime. So there's no point buying them. Yeah. I don't even uh, have CDs uh, for a while now. Um, I think as soon as the iPod came out, really, when I started loading that up and I didn't even use them in my car, I got one of those little FM transmitters or actually I had one of the cassette adapters for a while. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so CDs I haven't had for a long time. DVDs I think I got rid of in the last couple years to the point where um, I don't even have a DVD player anymore. I don't think I have a single optical drive in the house anymore, so I couldn't watch a DVD if I wanted to. And then books, for a while I thought like, oh, I need to keep every book that I've ever read, right? And I'm like, I got to have this massive library or whatever, and books are different. And But then I got to the point where I was like, I haven't read this book in like 10 years. Am I ever going to read it again? It's just eating up space. 
Um, so I, I have like a very small collection of books that I really care about and that I've read multiple times. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm completely, I have ebooks, I have, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that kind of stuff and Apple Music and I don't have any physical media. Huh. I hadn't thought about extrapolating this forward to books. And every so often I look at my bookshelf and think, oh, what am I going to do with all of these? And just now I moved some books from my bedside table back onto the bookshelf, like as if that's the final repository, the graveyard of books is my bookshelf, because they're going to sit there and never go anywhere. And I'm not going to read them again. And maybe the kids will read them. No, they won't. They'll use a Kindle or something. So yeah, that's quite a revelation, actually. I should just get rid of all my books as well, except for, like you say, the cherished ones. Yeah, I kept two when I chucked all mine away. Bible and the Koran. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had a couple of DVDs that I couldn't find uh, streaming or anything, and so I just copied them to a hard drive. And similarly with any music, I mean, that, that there is an argument that streaming services could go away and then suddenly you can't access those films. But I suppose any classics like Goodfellas, Casino, that sort of thing, you're going to be able to find them somewhere, and on, even if it means buying them off iTunes or something horrible like that. It's a ludicrous suggestion. Like, Spotify goes away tomorrow, then suddenly all the music companies are like, oh my God, I've got no way of getting music to my to my potential customers what will i do oh well we'll not bother no that's not gonna happen no, go all. to schmotify or whatever yeah, exactly. it's called yes yeah what about games do you guys uh have physical games or do you download all your games hmm for games i buy most games on steam or itch.io or humble bundle and they're just downloads so i don't have physical copies of any of them um, I, in fact, looking at my shelf, I think I have like two physical copies of games. That's it. Well, uh, I don't play games for I am not a child. <gasps> Biggest content consumption industry on the planet. Games. Bigger than movies and anything else. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It means you're out of touch. Okay. I figured you kept it right next to your anime collection. <laughs> <laughs> God. No. I play my guitars instead of games. I've tried to explain this to you before, Alan, that like you thought it was weird. Like, how can you not play any games ever? Well, those times when people want to relax and play a game, I pick up one of my guitars and play it for uh -huh. half an hour. And you're still not very good. <laughs> no, I'm terrible. <laughs> it's funny because my wife doesn't play games and like we'll play I bought four controllers for the thing and um we play games on that, but she'll just sit there and watch us. She won't join in yet. I'll look at her now and then and she's playing some match three game on her phone, like some puzzle game on her phone. So she like, she does play games, but just not the games with the rest of us, not the action stuff. Yeah. I don't even play any of those stupid games on my phone. I played Angry Birds for a bit when that first came out. Um, and um, what's the, the, the running guy around the temple run. That's it. I oh. played that for a little bit, but then I got bored of that and, they're pretty much the only mobile games I've ever played. And I just I don't see the appeal, really, of games. I did when I was a kid, but even then I didn't like one-player games. I used to like playing football and stuff like that with someone else. And I suppose now you can do that all online, but I'm just too old for all of that. Too old and too boring. Okay, Dan, this was one that you suggested to talk about, and that is, is it possible for mobile Linux to be a thing or is the barrier of entry too high now? Which is not really a valid question because mobile Linux is a thing. Do you mean, um, can it be successful? 
Yeah, that's why I was thinking more in terms of like actually gain market adoption, right? Because there is like Ubuntu phone and stuff like that. But I'm talking about like, you know, go to the, you know, T-Mobile or whatever store and actually pick up a handset today. You know, that's it's not something you can do. It's either Android or iOS, right? Um, but I think I'm wondering, you know, are we at a point now where these little handheld computers are so complicated um, that it's just too hard for us to break into that market or is it possible for us to do it or how do we even go about it? And I think it's it's on two fronts. It's from a hardware perspective. And I, I think Alan probably has more to say about this because he did he'd know a little bit more. Maybe uh, it, it doesn't seem like we don't have the ability like with we have with computers where we can run on a wide range of consumer hardware that there's like a very very limited range of mobile handsets that you can even run an alternative operating system on right so i i guess my first point is it depends how you measure success if your measurement of success is is it available in a bricks and mortar store in the united states of america then fair enough like not many not many uh devices are going to succeed there because a significant number of the also RANs and the others and the alternative OSs never shipped in stores in the US. And if that's your sole measure, then no, none of them have ever succeeded in any way, shape or form. But if your measurement is, are there thousands of people using it on a daily basis as their main computing, mobile computing device, then maybe it is successful for some people in by some measure. Um, and in countries outside of the US where a significantly higher proportion of the population of the planet live, like India, uh, it might be more successful. So things like Tizen, which is a Linux-based OS, much like Android, but it's more, um, well, it's, it's not Android, um, shall we say, uh, is more successful in places like India than it is in the West. So my first, my first point of contention is how, how are you measuring this? And yeah, okay, I get it that the top two are Android and Apple, and it's very difficult to unseat those. But everyone thought the same thing with Nokia and BlackBerry 15 years ago, right? It's it's one of those things that nothing lasts forever. Nothing. It doesn't matter what you can think of. Nothing lasts forever, except maybe paper. But even then, we've now got ebooks. So, you know, where, where what's your criteria for this? I guess it's more about general market success. And, and yeah, I guess I, I guess I wouldn't say that. Um, like being successful only in developing markets is is what I'm looking for, right? I think that like you can do that, you can target products towards developing markets or niche markets or whatever, and that's probably a way to be more successful. But I'm thinking in terms of the general kind of success that iOS and Android have, like how could there be a competitor to that? And I'm wondering, um, you know, based on the last thing you said, do you think that maybe it requires like a paradigm shift, right, for uh, Apple to come in and, and unseat the other uh mobiles at the time that it'd have to be a complete paradigm shift to the smartphone era right so do we need another big paradigm shift like that for a player to be able to unseat uh, ios and android right before the iphone all phones looked very similar and they all looked terrible you know when steve came up on stage and said hey look at the bottom third of all these devices they've all got this horrible janky unmodifiable keyboard and look we've got a full touch screen and now basically every single phone looks like that um if there was some generational change, and I don't know what that is, and I'm not a soothsayer, and you know, I don't have the the billions of uh, dollars to throw at people to figure out what the next generational thing is, maybe that is it. Maybe there's something that will change. Maybe it's VR or AR or something like that that's that's 
different enough that can't fit into the mold that we've accepted that that rectangular slab that we've got in our pocket right now maybe it does need that complete change the big problem i see is not so much the hardware support because that is possible and once you get buy-in from odms and oems it's possible to get your os either preloaded or support for your os i think more of a problem is the apps and the app ecosystem that people have bought into and you know you look at anyone's phone there's 50, 100, maybe more applications that people have got their their data siloed in and trying to get those people moved off of those platforms onto something else when all their data is siloed into all these little individual little pockets is really, really, really hard. But isn't the tide slowly starting to change? When the Cambridge Analytica thing happened with Facebook, it kind of made people aware, at least, of the idea that their data was being used and harvested. And we're seeing that slow change with Facebook where people are slowly moving off it and it's becoming less and less popular. Arguably, they're moving to just other similar proprietary lockdown platforms, but maybe not. I don't know. Could it be that privacy is is going to be this new thing and that's where Linux comes into it because it's open source, because it is not this proprietary lockdown system that we will actually be able to get some penetration into the mainstream market, if not to compete on a level playing field with iOS and Android, but maybe to be that kind of Windows phone level that before Microsoft pulled the plug? Frankly, no. Um, I think we've tried, and privacy is, is, is a laudable goal to have, and ultimate privacy on your device is a laudable goal to have um, for a mobile manufacturer. But take a step back and look at what people use their devices for. They want to be able to check into flights. They want to be able to borrow books from the library. They want to be able to count their steps on their like uh, tracking device that tells them how their heart rate's going. They want to do all these things that aren't necessarily directly privacy related. They're just apps. Like they're just things they use. Like, how, what if what if the device came along that was fantastic and it was free and open and privacy respected? But I can't turn my light bulbs on and off, or I can't open my garage door, or I can't interact with some other third party thing. And then you've got to go and chase down all those hundreds, actually thousands, maybe more, of application vendors and say, hey, you should support this thing here because a few people have got it. They just say no, because not enough people have got it. And that, that's the prob- one of the many problems that we had with Ubuntu Phone, is trying to convince people to port their applications over to a new platform was a real uphill struggle, because they're not going to do it, because you haven't got the market there for them. Why would, why would I bother spending developer time porting my light bulb application over to your platform when you've got like three people using it? And of those three people, only one of them's got our light bulbs. Yeah, but I've got three words for you. Proton, Wine, and Anbox. They are compatibility layers or emulators, whatever you want to call it, that allow you to run applications potentially on a Linux platform. So you could, using Anbox, for example, just install the Android version of the garage door opening thing or whatever. But what does that get you? That gets yeah. you a device that has your magical unicorn Linux kernel and exactly the same stack from a slightly above that upwards. It's the same stuff. It's, there's no difference. Like, why would you bother? Right. You're, you're actually making it worse because you're actually introducing a layer of abstraction between the application and the hardware. So that will be 
pretty much objectively worse than running it on Android natively. Yeah, I think in terms of like platform building that we don't get people to switch by doing the exact same thing that the existing platform they use already does because there's no incentive to change. Like it's a really hard thing to get someone to dump their operating system. And if they don't gain anything from it, they just do the exact same things that we're already doing. And that's not really a compelling reason to switch. So um, in general, the platform needs to do things that uh, it needs to do all the things that the users expect to be able to do, but it also be, needs to be able to do new things or do them in such a better way. Um, and so porting the same applications over, I don't think is a compelling way to get people to switch at all. And that's kind of the reason that we focused with App Center on the desktop and targeting uh, new application developers that want to introduce uh, new ideas of things that people can do on their desktops and not just try to do the same exact things the established platforms already do. Yeah, but if your new thing is privacy, and yes, you can run these Android apps th that you absolutely need, but hey, there's all these other free and open source applications which are going to maintain your privacy, then surely that's the way to, to go because if you do what Canonical did with Ubuntu phone and just steadfastly refuse to support Android apps because we're doing this whole new thing, then you're not going to get anywhere. But if you say to people, okay, you can use those couple of apps that you still need, but here's a bunch of new ones, surely that's the only way to make them make that transition because otherwise, if they just don't have any of those apps, they're not going to come over. To be fair, we didn't steadfastly refuse to support Android. We certainly looked into it deeply many times to see if that would help the platform. And out of Canonical came Anbox, somewhat late in in the in the story, but it came from people who worked on the phone. That's where Anbox came from. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, fair enough. I take that back then. Um, but I, it, I still I still don't see how that helps. Like you know, you go into a store and there's uh, you know using Daniel's measure of success. You go into a store and there's an array of devices. They all look pretty much the same. This one over here is native Android. This one over here is native Linux, but can run your Android apps. What compelling reason would I have for using that, given that I'm going to run the same apps on top of it anyway? It's, it, it, it's not compelling enough. And I think the fact that iPhone and later Android, but iPhone initially was a compelling um, design and a, you know, a compelling thing that had apps and was extendable with more apps. Whereas most phones before that, yes, some of them had app stores. There was a Symbian app store and it was pretty terrible and didn't have very much in it. But they embraced that. And I realized that very before anyone writes in, yes, I know the first iPhone didn't have an app store, but that was on the roadmap. And it was totally the plan to add those applications now that that's done, everyone's now embraced that system of having applications to put their data in. Winding that back is very difficult, if not impossible. You guys remember when uh, the Facebook phone came out? Vaguely, yeah. It was like a brief flash in the pan, but it had so many like interesting design ideas and such an interesting way of like handling social situations as part of the operating system. And I wonder if there's just something like that that we can do where we don't necessarily have to change the hardware form factor, because I think that's a barrier that right now, like nobody can achieve, even with the canonical tried Ubuntu hardware, right? And it didn't really happen. So we need to deal with existing hardware. But some some kind of software paradigm shift that we could do to kind of get a wedge in there to go, hey, this is this is a fundamentally different way to think about your mobile handset. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, it took a couple of billion dollar companies to do that change uh, previously. I think it's quite an uphill struggle. Uh, I'm, I'm typically a glass half full kind of guy, but I think this is this is really difficult. And I think the only thing that's going to, in inverted commas, bring down Apple or Google is controversy, legislation, uh, breaking the companies up, you know, something catastrophic will would bring one of them down like you look at nokia they couldn't do anything wrong and then along comes Stephen elop with his with his hat on and basically wrecks the company it it needs something like that either on purpose or by virtue of some other legislation or you know the moon hits the earth or some like big event that causes a significant enough change and we ride that wave i don't think we can trigger that well it's going to happen this year this huge event this huge industry defining changing event and that's going to be the launch of the Librem 5 so how many people do you think are honestly going to buy a Librem 5 that, <laughs> that, that can run GNU slash Linux applications and not much else not many I think the the one of the biggest problems we have right now with uh, the software that we provide is if you take everything that like every leading GNU slash Linux operating system can do and jam it all together in one super feature packed operating system, it still can't do half the things that iOS and Android do. I mean, we don't have uh, a voice assistant, which is pretty essential for a lot of people's workflow these days. It can't interact with like half the sensors. There's no equivalence to APIs like HealthKit or uh, HomeKit or, or you know, uh, Core ML or any of these kinds of like there's massive developer facing API that just does not exist in any of the platforms that we have right now. Right. Even as simple as like you and your friends playing a game against each other and sharing your high scores. We don't even have that. Like there's like a million different, every time I, I watch um, some of the Google IO talks or whenever the Apple do one of their big keynotes and they talk about all the APIs they've added and all the additional features they've added. I just feel us slipping further and further and further behind every single time because there's so much that we can't do. And they are so far ahead in like leagues leagues ahead with the hundreds of thousands of developers who work on these projects and and have implemented things that we can only dream of and uh, will be catching up in 20 years time and they'll have moved on to something else and i feel like that with such a push from so many people to use things like electron that we're slipping even farther away where so many people are saying well let's let's work on a platform that is even less api capable than what we have right now and sandbox ourselves into just what you can accomplish in a web frame and it seems just such the opposite direction of, of how to compete with these mobile applications yeah but can you ssh into an iphone i have no idea why would you do that Right, another hashtag ask error. If you could get rid of summer and winter and just have one single meh season, would you do it? Now, this, I suppose, uh, we need to clarify something. I don't know what the weather is like where you live, Dan. Is it always just hot and sunny every day? No, no, we definitely have seasons. Uh, where I am exactly, we don't get snow in the winter. But summers are brutally hot and dry, um, like 40 degrees hot. Wow. And in the winter, how cold does it get? 
oh, um, I think, let's see, like eight or nine degrees, maybe. Oh, I like the fact that you've translated this into our degrees. Well done. Yeah, I do my best. My my girlfriend hates it. She's like, use real units <laughs> from the past. I'm like it is real. <laughs> yeah. I believe in it. Alan gets me. Yeah. Joe gets me. Yeah, exactly. All right, so there is a significant difference then. All right, so would you get rid of the extremes and just have sort of, well, in England, in the UK, it would be sort of grey, sort of, I don't know, 15 degrees and drizzling every day. Would you Would you rather have that? Well, meh weather doesn't necessarily mean drizzling every day, surely. Well, not drizzling, but meh means sort of like cloudy and... About 15 degrees. Like foggy. Well, no, foggy is kind of a bit more extreme winter type stuff. But um, because, well, the, the question, the answer for me is definitely yes, because I hate winter. As much as I love summer, I despise winter. So I would settle for this. Wow. Meh. I thought you'd be a winter person. I didn't think you'd, uh, you'd be a meh person. Oh, no, I cannot stand being cold. I just can't stand being cold is the problem. But you've got a bit of lagging, haven't you? You you keep a bit warm, <laughs> don't you? A little bit, but I just oh, I just can't stand, especially indoors, even with the heating on and jumpers on and my ears are cold and it's just like, oh, my feet are cold. And yes, I should get slippers. My wife says, just get slippers. And I'm no, I'm not getting slippers. I'm not there yet. No doubt you've got slippers, Alan. Yeah, multiple pairs. Obviously. Uh, I never wear them, uh, or almost never wear them. I forget that they exist sometimes and then go into a cupboard and be like, oh yeah, slippers. Um, <laughs> I I actually am the complete opposite. I love winter. It's Winter's my favorite time. I, w- I would get rid of all the mare and all the summer and just have winter all day, every day. Because uh, the thing about summer is being a bit of a fat lardy, I sweat a bit and get a bit hot and I don't like that and there's nothing you can do about it and we don't have air conditioning in the UK whereas when I go to foreign countries where it's summer and they have aircon, I like that because I like being cold. I used to drive home from work and have the air conditioning on low, like the lowest number it would go on, blowing directly in my face all the way home and I'd come home and Claire would greet me and then give me a kiss and she'd be like, oh Jesus, you're freezing and because, <laughs> because I love it really, really cold and the problem is she gets cold a completely different scale than I do. So I like having the house nice and cool and she likes having it nice and toasty. So, But the the problem I find is whilst you can keep cold with air conditioning if you have it, which we don't, in the winter when it's cold, you can just put more clothes on or put a blanket on or and we've got a lot of blankets in our house or turn the heating on or whatever it's there's something you can do to to moderate your temperature but in summer it feels like there's fuck all you can do and you just boil constantly and have to shower all the time and change your clothes all the time and and i hate that the whole stepping out the house and just breaking out into a sweat but equally i hate the constant gray of the meh season so i would object to meh and i would have winter yeah, as much as summers are brutal, and and I completely agree that it feels like there's absolutely nothing you can do about a hot summer, uh, I do like 
kind of the winter days where it's just cold and rainy outside and you have the heat on and you get a blanket and a cup of hot chocolate and watch a movie or whatever. It's very much like, oh, it's winter. I'm going to stay inside and just relax. And I don't know. There's something nice about those kind of days. Uh, and I also really like uh, fall days when it's not too windy, um, but it's just kind of a little bit chilly and you can bundle up and take a walk, you know, and see all the leaves changing colors and all that kind of stuff. So I think I'd, I think I'd keep seasons. Yeah, those those like three days in the UK in between all the trees being green and all the leaves being on the ground, like those three days where they're changing colour, <laughs> that that's quite nice. I like that bit. Yeah. If we could keep that for the whole year, I'd I'd like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, when I get to be Jeff Bezos rich and I don't get divorced, so I get to have all the money, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna strap rockets to the earth strategically and I'm gonna fire them in such a way that it corrects the tilt of the earth. And then we won't have summer and winter anymore. We'll just have meh all year round. Can't you just invest some money in chemtrails? <laughs> right, it's time to get serious. Is free will an illusion or do we genuinely have it? There are a lot of philosophers who have argued over this over the years. And so now it's our turn to become philosophers. <laughs> Um, so where do you guys stand on this? I hadn't even considered it until you mentioned we were going to talk about it. So I did, did a bit, a little bit of homework. I watched a YouTube video and, and now I feel enlightened. And so before I thought I would have, if you'd have said, do you have free will? I would have thought, yeah, yeah, totally. I do. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm the master of my own destiny. But having watched uh, a little bit of YouTube, I now feel slightly more educated on the matter and I now feel completely the opposite and that there is no such thing as free will. Yeah, it kind of seems like free will is an illusion, right? It, it seems like it's all fundamentally just the result of chemical reactions, physical reactions at some point, right? Do you really actually choose or anything or is it because of your brain chemistry that it, the equation just kind of spits out that answer and that's what you do? Right. And, and I can see why someone would argue that, you know, you feed in all of these things like your DNA and your parents and the way you were brought up and all the interactions you've had with other people and the education. And these are all just numbers that you feed into the algorithm. And the result is that the words that you're saying or the way you're walking or, you know, whether you lift your right hand or left hand or whether you get a career here or there, there are, they are as a direct result of all of these inputs. The problem is you, we don't know what all of those inputs are. You know, we could write a list of them and there still might be some missing that, you know, you, whether it's, um, you know, phases of the moon or sunspots or whatever it might be that we, we can't account for. And that, I think that's part of the problem is it's somewhat of an academic navel gazing exercise to talk about this because. If you accept this, that free will is an illusion, you accept that actually it's just a bunch of variables plugged into an algorithm. So what? Like, it doesn't it doesn't largely matter for your normal person because as far as you're concerned it's it's you it's yourself you as an individual who made that thing happen now whether it was the the variables of genetics or the variables of uh whether you were given vegetables as a child or what it largely doesn't matter because you are the product of that and it's the product that that, that took the action it's not the peas on the plate 30 years ago that took the action it's the the culmination of all those things together that took the action. But what does it mean for morality? If we have no free will, then why don't we just do bad things that serve us well? Why don't I go and rob a bank? 
and get millions of quid, well, maybe not millions, hundreds of quid probably these days, and spend it having a good time. Because it's not me who's doing it. It's I have no free will. It's not up to me to decide. But if you're arguing that you have no free will, then you've kind of accepted that it's not up to you to decide to do bad things. You get to do good things whether you like it or not, Joe. It's causality. <laughs> I know, but I do have free will. I, I find it so counterintuitive. I understand the academic and intellectual argument against it, but I'm just not having it. If I want to do things, then I will do them. And if I don't, then I won't. Right. That's true. But what's your definition of I? Your definition of I, the self, is the meat bag that carries your brain around. And what made that meat bag and that brain is the things you've eaten and the activities you've done over the last N years and the genetics and the sunspots and the moon phases and whether you swam in a nuclear chemical pool and you know all the different things that you've done in your life led you to become that person who's deciding whether to rob a bank or not. So that is you. So yes, you are deciding, but... So the the thing that I find interesting about this is at the moment, a lot of this is hypothetical. And if we could scan your brain and freeze frame your brain and look at the ones and zeros inside your brain, we could determine what you're going to do next. And we could determine what it was that caused that thing. But the fact is, we can't. We can't do that. So it's a thought experiment and nothing more. So it's largely irrelevant and nothing more than a discussion. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. Like to me, to my conscious brain, the only thing that really matters is my experience, right? And if my experience is that I think that I have agency, then who really cares if that's true or not, uh, right? Like, does it really matter for the enjoyment of my life or the making the ex- most of the experience that I have as an individual? Right. And I, I remember like years ago when when I was younger and I would do something that was objectionable or bad or whatever you want to call it. And I remember my family members saying, oh, yeah, your brother or your dad used to do that, like basically implying that genetically you were predisposed to do that action, whatever it was. You're predisposed to do that. And so you didn't have agency. You weren't in control of that thing. And I used to get really irritated when people would say that. And I still get irritated when my mum says, oh, your dad did that as well. And it's like, fuck off. I'm an individual. I'm, this, I'm not him. I'm, I'm a separate individual in my own right. But the fact remains, it's true. Like, I am a product of the genetics of my mum and dad, just like everyone. Yeah, but what separates us is that we have this thinking brain and we can decide to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. And okay, you can make this circular argument that, well, it's those precursors that make you make that decision, but I'm not having it. Like you can go against your programming. Like there are many times when I will find myself drifting towards something and decide, no, I'm not going to do that or the opposite or whatever. Right. And it's your programming that made you choose one or the other. No, it's not. My programming, I can feel my programming making me want to do this one thing and whatever it happens to be. But then I can feel myself going against that programming. And okay, you can make this argument of, ah, oh, well, that's your programming was to make you think that you were going against your programming. But I'm just, I'm not having it. Maybe it's some sort of, um, I don't know, God complex that I have, whereas I feel that I'm above nature or whatever. <laughs> no, I think it's about the depth of your understanding. And I'm not calling you ignorant or an idiot. You're me thick, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd get in there early and say, so like, 
a user is using a computer and they press a button that, that is generate a random number, right? And as far as they're concerned, they press a button and a random number appears. And from a, like a, a novice user, they know that button equals number, but a person who programmed the thing that put the button on the screen and put the number on the screen knows that they called a rand function, right? So there's a, a, a second level there of knowledge about what made that random number appear. But then the person who wrote the programming language knows how the rand function works and they know a little bit more. And then the guy who wrote the, or the people who wrote the kernel will know about the function at the kernel level that does it. And then the people who made the CPU know about, and the people who made the microcode, and then the people who made the silicon. And so the, there's all these levels of abstraction. If you look at the human brain, we're just touching the surface of our knowledge of what happens in the human brain and you and i and everyone else don't know how far down it, the level of control that determines whether you do something this way or that way is we just don't have that deep enough understanding are we any more complicated really than just some set of machine learning algorithms and it's all just based on the training set that we've been given Right. And if you give it the same training set, the same network will result at the end. You know, if you feed the same inputs, you'll get the same output. So, you know, the, the, the usual thought experiment is you take a pair of twins and you give them exactly the same life. You feed them exactly the same. You give them the same life experiences, which is an impossible experiment to conduct. But the theory goes that you will get the same thing out at the end. And that's to be expected because they've had all the same inputs. Well... To quote Stuart Lee's taxi driver, you can prove anything with facts, can't you?